Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. Daniel chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the third year, the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. This he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in a king's palace. He was to teach them in the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for the three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned you food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king will then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guide, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azara, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these young, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into the service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. And then our New Testament reading is from 1 Peter 2, verse 4 to 12. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Hear the word of the Lord. So this is a, a short series, just today and next Wednesday, that's born out of a study and a book um, from Barna called Faith for Exiles. And the study consists of a series of surveys taken among young people across the world from 26 different nations, from South Korea uh, to New Zealand to Europe to South America. And the study is looking at the state of faith for the next generation, the generation known as millennials, right, which this study uh, released a couple of years ago defined as 18 to 35-year-olds. Now, I'm, I'm an elder millennial, right? I've got a couple of years left in that category, <laughs> which means I still remember the sound of dial-up internet and I was an adult when Gangnam Style came out. <laughs> but, but I've never sent a fax or owned a landline. Is there anyone else who fits those criteria with me? Yep, okay, all right, there's a few in that box. Some of you guys are, are younger than that. You're down the lower end of millennials or even lower than that, perhaps. You can't even remember the world before TikTok. There's some of us in the room. Others of us in the room are still sitting there thinking, what's Gangnam Style? <laughs> so there's, there's a whole range of us in the room, but this is relevant for all of us in our lives and our ministries. It's relevant in our own lives and in the lives of the people that we lead and disciple. And often this kind of research into the future of the church or young people in the church focuses on things that are going wrong or the challenges or threats for the next generation. And this research does engage with challenges to the church in the coming decades. But primarily, this study is actually about the people and the parts of the church that are strong, that are going well with Jesus. This research identifies and explores five markers of resilient discipleship among young followers of Jesus around the world. And that makes it a wonderful and, and fitting and useful resource for us. And this, this sermon, and again next Wednesday, is, is built out of a, a series that we preached uh, at Uni Church, where I serve uh, and where the majority of the congregation are under 30, even under 25. It's a, it's a pretty unique context, right, so that when I use the word millennials to describe us, uh, some of the congregation, including a couple of people in the room, jump down my throat to insist that they're younger than millennials and millennials are old. <laughs> so at, at, at Uni Church, the, the goal of this series is to disciple, to equip young believers for resilient faith 
uh, in the coming years and decades. Here, we've got dual purposes, right? That same goal for those of us who are young and looking at ministry over the coming decades. And for all of us to equip us, to equip young disciples, to serve the people that we lead who will be following Jesus for half a century or more to come. So let's, let's open the Bible. Uh, would you have Daniel chapter 1 open there in front of you? So God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt and he brought them into the land he promised them. And despite their lack of faith and through all kinds of obstacles and challenges, God provided for them. He established his people in their land where they could worship him and represent him. But you know the story, right? You know they continually failed to do so. The people of God and their leaders continue to betray God and ignore God. And after centuries of patience, the Lord finally delivers on the punishment that he's long promised if they don't turn back to him. So let's uh, read just the first couple of verses of Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. And these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. So God allows Babylon, the ancient superpower, to conquer Jerusalem and to carry off its people and its wealth far away into exile. Young men are conscripted into the king's service. Others are enslaved. And so God's people are suddenly and violently compelled to learn to live in a new situation. No longer are they in Jerusalem where God's law shaped the culture, where things were slower paced, where God's name was at least respected, if not loved. But now in Babylon... Still a highly spiritual place, but very pagan, very multicultural, hyper-stimulated. It's a technological crossroads of an empire. And for us today, especially for young believers today, we find ourselves in a season of upheaval in a new situation in which to live out Christian faith. Not in a physical Babylon, but in digital Babylon. This is the term that the researchers of this study use to describe the world that young Christians live in. Digital Babylon is the highly spiritual but pagan, hyper-stimulated, multicultural, technological crossroads, which is home to every person in the world with data access. Because, like an ancient empire, the internet conquers, it colonises, it demands obedience. We don't need to look any further than this morning's newspaper to see that at play, right? Screens inform us and connect us, they entertain us and distract us, they overwhelm us and monetize us. We learn skills on YouTube, right? We form political opinions in chat threads, we receive world news through Instagram accounts, we maintain significant relationships through messaging apps. We go to class on Zoom. The typical 
15 to 23-year-old churchgoer spends 291 hours per year taking in spiritual content and 2,767 hours per year using screen media. And so for us who long to be resilient and thriving disciples of Jesus, we need to learn to be so in Babylon, in digital Babylon, not back in Jerusalem. We must learn to thrive as followers of Christ in a culture which is not only apathetic to the gospel, but is hostile to it, which sees it as a threat, which actively tries to reprogram us away from Jesus. M read for us some of the words from the Apostle Peter writing to Christians in another dominant empire, another colonising empire called Rome. And Peter addressed Christians there as exiles, just like God's people were in Babylon. Verse 11 and 12, he said, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Even in digital Babylon, even in Babylon, in Rome today, we are still God's chosen people, sanctified by the Spirit, sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. And even in digital Babylon, we're still called to live such good lives that the pagans would see God in us. Faith for Exiles shows that there are young believers across the world who are living these good lives as exiles in digital Babylon. But they are not the majority. The group that this study engages with are millennials who have been part of church. That's that's the people surveyed, millennials who have been part of church and then breaks them down into four groups. First are prodigals who were once part of church but have rejected that identity and no longer follow Jesus. Then there's there's nomads who have not explicitly rejected Jesus but are not living out faith in Christian community. Habitual churchgoers who attend church, maybe even volunteer, maybe even go to a Bible study, but their, their personal ethics and preferences show little or no difference to that of the prodigals and nomads. They go to church, but they're not transformed disciples. And finally, resilient disciples, those who express deep faith in Christ. These are the the transformed believers. They pray, they love scripture, their faith changes the way they think, the way they make decisions. They they are really a a faithful remnant among 18 to 35-year-olds in churches across the world. And here's how those groups are represented in Australia. Resilient disciples make up 8% of millennials who have been part of church in Australia. So think of the kids in your church, at, at Kids Church on Sunday morning, learning about Jesus. Without something changing, 70% of them, will walk away from church. 
fewer than one in 10 will endure as resilient disciples for the rest of their lives. Something has to change. We cannot continue the way things were. But there is hope. There's living hope. That's what Peter wants to give to Christians in exile across the world. Living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Living hope into an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. Right, it's to that same Peter that Jesus promised, on you I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. There is no Babylon, whether imperial or digital, that can prevail against God's plan to take his gospel to the ends of the earth. In every generation, God has raised up the next. In every time, he has kept a faithful remnant to carry the gospel forwards. That's who resilient disciples are. That's who we are called to be. God will use young believers to lead and refine and grow his church through exile in digital Babylon. And if you partner with him, he will use you in that vision. So there are five key practices that mark out these resilient disciples around the world. Five traits of resilient discipleship to develop in ourselves or in those that we are discipling to prepare for thriving faith over the next half a century. Here they are. Intimacy with Jesus, cultural discernment, meaningful relationships, vocational discipleship and countercultural mission. Those five traits statistically mark out young people across the world who are truly transformed by the gospel and who will endure as resilient and thriving disciples. So what we're going to do is, with with the time that we have left this morning, we're going to take a joy flight over those five traits, just touching briefly on each one, and then next Wednesday we'll dig into each of them in more detail to think about how we might nurture those traits in ourselves and in those that we disciple and lead. So let's, let's kind of whip through what these look like. The first trait of resilient young disciples across the world is intimacy with Jesus. Human beings are, are unique in creation in part because we are undergoing this constant search for identity, right? We ask this question, who am I? That's a unique question to people. And in digital Babylon, our screens grant us access to endless identity-forming tools and communities, adventures and opportunities, right? In digital Babylon, we must decide our own identity. We build our own identity. We present our own identity. But being burdened with the responsibility of being the arbiter of our own identities is, is deeply unstable and problematic, So rather, the identity of resilient and thriving disciples in Jesus is born out of their intimacy with Jesus, their their felt experience of walking with Jesus. So intimacy with Jesus statistically is the first trait of resilient discipleship. And second, cultural discernment. The question is, 
how do I understand the culture around me and how do I find wisdom to live in it? Young people are looking to their devices to make sense of the world around them, right? And in their devices, they have access to endless, instant information. And so our culture is highly accelerated and complex and connected, and that leads to to anxiety and isolation and paralysis. But resilient young disciples of Jesus develop the muscles of cultural discernment. The researchers put it this way. For resilient discipleship, young believers need to develop the ability to compare the beliefs, values, customs and creations of the world we live in to those of the world we belong to, the kingdom of God. And once we've made that comparison to anchor our lives, including our use of technology, to the theological, moral and ethical norms of God's kingdom. The third trait of resilient discipleship is meaningful and and intergenerational relationships. Digital Babylon drives people into ever fragmenting, ever more homogenous social groups, which interact in the sterile realm of online communication. And so we, we end up with this situation of eroded trust in authorities, including church, and with increasing division and disdain between cultural groups between generations, right? We see this typified in phrases like, okay, boomer, snowflakes, these kind of things, right? But, but resilient disciples aren't like that. Instead, they're embedded in diverse and deep relationships, both with people who are like them and people who are different to them. Basically, they're, they're deep in church community. Fourth, among a generation which is highly ambitious and flexible in their vocational lives, resilient young disciples see their vocation, whether that's paid work or otherwise, as as core to their walk with Jesus and not as disconnected from their faith. They're integrated people. They see themselves and their work in God's big story. And finally, perhaps the most elusive of the five traits, resilient disciples have a strong sense of countercultural mission. Though they're exiled in a culture of unprecedented selfishness and entitlement, they're not focused on themselves but on serving and reaching others. They're outward-facing. They see themselves as agents in God's plan to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. And they're empowered to share their story and God's story with others. So there we go. Really quickly, there's five traits for resilient discipleship. And next week, we'll dig into those deeper. But let's finish by returning to the story of Daniel and seeing a resilient young disciple at work. Let's read from verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Men like Marinus, right? (laughs) He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years and after that they were to enter the king's service. Can you see... 
the cultural pressure of Babylon at play. It's an imperial strategy, right? A cultural suppression strategy to take the best young men and to reshape them, knowing that they will then in turn shape their nation. They're taught the language and the literature of Babylon. They're given good food and wine and trained to think and speak and act like Babylonians. And Babylon's aim for these young men is digital Babylon's aim for you. Your device and the worldview and corporations behind it is attempting to disciple you, to reshape you. But Daniel is a thriving and resilient disciple. From verse 8, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favour and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who's assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. So Daniel resists that coercive and seductive power of Babylon and he thrives. He has the opportunity to enjoy all the pleasures of Babylon, but his heart remains fixed on God. And at the end of the 10 days... They looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. And to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. God blesses Daniel and his friends to live well in exile under pressure. They are resilient and thriving disciples in Babylon. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, four young believers, four resilient disciples who are remembered for thriving in exile. The other kind of exiles, the ones who succumbed to cultural pressures, they didn't have history written about them. But this faithful remnant endured And God carried his gospel plan through them. Our world desperately needs resilient disciples for the next 50 years. We need a faithful remnant, just as we needed in the land of Babylon, who will endure and innovate. This is how God works, right? Constantly renewing and reforming his church through a faithful remnant of those deeply devoted to Jesus and from whom renewal and change flows out through the church. If you're in the room, you are part of that story. Some of us don't have another 50 years, but have the joy to entrust the gospel to the next generation. And some of us will be and will lead that remnant into the future as we nurture this kind of discipleship in ourselves and in those we serve. I'm determined to be a resilient and thriving disciple of Jesus in the next half a century of exile. How about you?